Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider, a weekly podcast bringing you the most up-to-date news, views and interviews where technology meets finance, mixed in with some chat and of course the occasional pint of lager. Uh, we've recovered from a big Christmas. We're back for 2017. Season two, people. Season two. And we're live from Level 39 in London, the heart of fintech. As ever, I'm here with David Breer and Simon Taylor. Say hi. Hello. Hello. Co-founders of 11FS. And in case you're interested, that's a specialist advisory and consultancy firm that helps banks become truly digital. Chris Skinner is in Singapore today, so apparently won't get up in the middle of the night in order to come on this podcast. Rude. Just rude. There's just no commitment. There just really isn't. So he won't be joining us. But luckily, we've drafted in help. We've drafted in the big guns from the Netherlands. We've got the ING posse bringing that knowledge and expertise to uh, to the podcast. So I'd like to welcome uh, Mark Butenek. Have I murdered that pronunciation or does, does that work? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're pretty close. It's Mark Buitenhek, actually, but you're more than close. Uh, Mark is Global Head of Transaction Services at ING. I don't know if you want to say hello and uh, give us a, a little about yourself. Hi, everyone. And first of all, of course, a happy new year. And welcome to, again, interesting times, I would say. <laughs> glad, to be on, glad to be on your show. Thanks, Mark. And we've got Benoit Legrand, which... By the way, it has to be the best name in fintech. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of your name. Uh, Global Head of Fintech for ING. Do you want to say a little, little to the crowd? Yes, hello, and uh, hello, everyone, and thanks for having us on the show. We're happy to start the uh, exciting 2017 with all of you because a uh, lot of changes ahead. That's great. Well, now we've got our experts in tow. Um, let's get on with the news. Okay, so first up today, we've got a story from The Independent. Uh, Sir Ivan Rogers, the Britain's EU ambassador, has uh, attacked muddled Brexit thinking with a scathing resignation letter. David. Yeah, I, I kind of think, um, I appreciate this is sort of straying slightly into politics and not into not into fintech, as, uh, as I'm sure uh, everybody's aware, but it, it kind of feels pretty significant to me because it, it kind of feels like um, our hope that this would all sort of be fixed reasonably quickly and all be in a situation where we knew what we were doing and all the uh, horrible, ambiguous nature of uh, the what's happening with Brexit and the impact on kind of all of our day-to-day lives with regards to kind of fintech and banking would go away. Um, I think this just prolongs the pain. Uh, and arguably, if you kind of look at what his statements have been around the fact that even he didn't have a clear view of what the negotiating points were for, uh, for England, for Britain in in uh, our exit, then for me, it, it just spells to people are just making it up as they go along, quite frankly. So um, I, I think all of the uncertainty in, in the markets and everything that uh, we hoped wouldn't happen have happened with regards to Brexit. And actually everything that we hoped would happen, as in a quick removal of the band-aid that would be Brexit, hasn't happened. So I, I know we don't want to go into the details too much, but it just feels like more pain this year on that one than I hope it had gone away. So I think for me, the fintech story here isn't London and isn't Brexit, but it is the growing confidence of the rest of the countries in Europe. There's a really interesting story in Business Insider uh, about the France digital minister um, sort of saying that Brexit has uh, just been a bit of a distraction, but it's also galvanized startups to really look at France and to consider it more. And at the same time, what we're finding is that, you know, France 
uh, has really done a lot of proactive outreach called uh, La French Tech Initiative, which I think is <laughs> wonderfully titled. What does that mean? Sorry. Yeah, well, it's hard to translate. It really is. Um, but they, they were saying that the um, funding obtained by French startups reached uh, 857 million euros, uh, which is double the amount invested in Germany and almost equaling the 919 million invested in the UK. That, now, that's all of tech. That's not fintech. But that said... I think one of the things they, they point out here is that uh, the strength of European countries isn't to compete with each other, but actually to create a market that competes with the US and China. And, and we'll come on to China a little bit later, but I think that's a super interesting point that actually we're seeing confidence come from Europe and we may be seeing investment and talent start to shift. Mm. So if you're in fintech, you know, keep your eye out on what's happening across the continent, definitely. I mean, uh, we've all been across to Amsterdam for the European FinTech Awards and, and working with some banks there. Um, it seems there's a vibrant scene out there already. Have you seen any um, uh, improvements or, or kind of shift in what's happening um, uh, over in the Netherlands, guys? Yes, I think, and, and not only in the Netherlands, but in Europe. And as, as Simon rightly pointed, I think all of continental Europe, as you call it, is just getting exciting and saying, wow, there's more business coming up to us. And and there was some prediction of having 20,000 bankers moving from from uh, from the UK to Paris. You know, this was like local estimates <clears throat> of what the Brexit could bring. I think eventually... Uh, startups and all those companies are focusing on their businesses and I think there's a lot of discussion between the different states where startups do not really care about well we've had in our innovation studio here in Amsterdam for instance a French fintech which started activities in Hong Kong spent six months here with us in Amsterdam and now is located in Lisbon right and and frankly they don't care you know, they are focusing on their businesses and growing their business. So the point is, is where is the market which is offering the largest and the best agility and working conditions for those uh, people to grow faster? Because this, this is the challenge. And Brexit coming in one year, two years, three years, wh whenever it comes, nobody cares. I think all those fintechs have to survive until that time. And there's one, there's one thing maybe to add and to build on what you're saying is that we notice that some of the fintechs get a bit nervous about the passport type of uh, regulation, right? If you're still in London uh, and you and you have a license, can you then still operate uh, out through Europe, etc.? And those kind of concerns we do hear uh, sometimes. And that's why we see some of those guys now looking for licenses in, let's say, Luxembourg, Amsterdam, Berlin, uh, Paris, etc., etc. But so far... Uh, not too many big shifts, right? No, no. Though I think the the uh, Dutch authorities are, I must say, quite proactive. Uh, I think I would say maybe the most proactive here on the continent to follow the uh, English example of starting a sandbox. Uh, I think <laughs> Amsterdam is a place where it's it's an entrepreneurship country. You know, the culture is there. You can do business in whatever language. I was you know, no later than today talking with some Turkish people moving over to Amsterdam because they say it's much easier for us to come to Amsterdam than to come to Berlin or Paris or wherever. So I think intrinsically the Netherlands offers maybe 
and I'm Belgian, right? So I'm not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think if Mark would say this, that would be different. But I, I, no. I, I'm just telling this is, <clears throat> I think, maybe the first best alternative next to London to develop this entrepreneurship business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a, a bit of shameless plugging there but i like it i guess that brings us on to our second story which uh, which is interesting against that background of uh you know of brexit and of europe in um in the fact that manis has raised uh, 10 million dollars for its series a uh, which is a banking app targeted at immigrants and expats and i'm looking at an article here by steve here in TechCrunch. Um, and I know Norris and the guys at Manise pretty well. Um, they they aim very specifically at, uh, at helping people, at helping uh, immigrants to the UK start a uh, what's the equivalent to a bank account in three or four minutes. And this ten million in Series A funding uh, is really to go to help launch their Euro account. So obviously this this is one of those uh, occasions where you know against a backdrop of uncertainty, you've got a UK startup that's. Um, that's making some expansive moves into into six countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Moneys are an interesting one, aren't they? They've um, they've been around for a little while now, haven't they? And and actually, they've largely sort of flown under the radar of all of the you know the massive hype of the the kind of big challenger banks coming through in the, this course of the year. They've been sort of slowly out there doing it and making it happen. And the you know the features and the functionality are very good, aren't they? In terms of what they've delivered, so. You know, this is sort of more of the same for those guys, but maybe, like you say, stepping up a little bit of a a level, because I don't really read this as them doing anything different. I just read them as it doing more of it. Is that right? Yeah, well, they've got 40,000 customers um, from over 179 countries. So it kind of shows you that they can open an account for for just about anyone, Mm. Um, and especially in a market where someone fresh to the country might struggle to get an account to put money in. It really kind of gives gives a view on that. And they've done uh, 1.8 million transactions since September 2015. So, so um, they've not been around that long, but they've, um, they're obviously kind of pushing. But I think the key for me is they solve a real need. Like that migrant worker comes into a country, needs to be able to open a bank account, has no credit history, has nowhere to go, has no way to get started earning money, and is, is locked out of the economy. So that's solving a real problem. That's what FinTech kind of should be doing. I think the other story here that's interesting is the type of investors they've got. So yes, Anthemis has invested in them and STE Capital has invested in them. But there's an investment here from uh, career investment partners who are describing themselves as a strategic investor. And they're the first, uh, they're the only investor in um, internet-only bank, Caco Bank, which is described as um, the Korean's first internet-only bank, which again, Super, super interesting that we're seeing funding coming from Southeast Asia. So there's there's a theme, two themes I want to point out. Theme number one, look at the migrant worker, look at the unbanked as an opportunity for fintech. Theme number two, look at the sources of capital coming out of Southeast Asia to fund that because they see probably they're the market that has the biggest need in the world for that type of account. I don't know if you guys have any, any thoughts on that. Yes, I, I think... But this is one of numerous initiatives, right, in this area. This is not the first remittance app or remittance you know, way or a new way to attack the remittance market. And, and as a matter of fact, um, I'm talking under uh, Mark's control, but I think this is a market which is already a bit away from 
the bank and bank's market share have, have dropped a lot in this area, right? So what we see is a lot of competition. You can also wonder whether 10 million euros is something which will effectively bring you there while you see all those competitors coming. And, and I can imagine also the existing world uh, uh, remittance specialists are fighting back. Right. So yeah, it's I think, going to be a quite interesting fight there coming up. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think Manis, um less than the less than focusing on remittance and more about the kind of basic bank account need for an immigrant that would struggle with KYC in, in country. And actually, that, yeah. that's um, I think that's part of the, the really interesting uh, part of their business model that against, uh, you know, a, a number of prepaid card competitors that are essentially losing money on every transaction and are using VC cash in order to, to grow market share and to deliver services and to, to be that almost bank account. Um, but at the same time, it costing them to do that. Manise, I think, uh, by, I think they charge £4.95 a, uh, a month. Uh, to customers who, uh, to to a certain extent, it's a tax because they couldn't, they can't get, or they struggle to get a, accounts at the at the major banks. But equally, it makes it a viable business where you'd argue that there are plenty of um, of fintechs out there with uh, you know with prepaid cards and apps that don't have a uh, you know a future mapped out where there's a there's profit you know where there's a revenue and uh, i think that's something that's quite nice for me around manis is that uh, there is a business model there is a customer need you know that actually you know arguably with the sort of immigrant population you know coming into europe as well that 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 expands that into a you know in, into an interesting business mm. i did read a um, i think it was actually another TechCrunch article though about you know is last year's buzzword disrupt this year's pivot and, and actually, is this just a bit of a pivot from money? He's not wanting to turn everything into a Brexit chat. But if you're only an immigrant to a country that's essentially telling immigrants to go away, then do you need to go and take your services to other countries anyway? Mm. So is this money's really just seeing what the future holds with regards to where the European right. setup is, particularly in the UK, and then actually moving out and going to uh, serve where those customers actually are? I was going to say, it feels more like expansion than a pivot, like expanding into Europe where there are more natural... Uh, migrants, given the you know, recent migrant crisis and the sheer amount of migration that's been happening in the recent sort of year or two, mm, definitely want to watch that. I think. I guess we uh, we hear a lot about sort of challenger banks and uh, neo banks and you know almost accounts uh, in the UK. Uh, what do you see um, in Amsterdam and in in the Netherlands in terms of that that space? ING was a challenger, yep. right? Now we, we we like to call ourselves a uh, twenty years old fintech, right? So uh, <laughs> we, we we're becoming adults uh, and and wise. So uh, as we started with with ING Direct twenty years ago, but this is really uh -huh. something we went through in disrupting ourselves and building a new model. But I can tell you, it, it's not a ten million euro challenge, right? Which we brought uh -huh. there to bring this to about ten countries, right? So there was much higher amounts. And what we see uh -huh. now in the neo banks, now we've seen the uh, number twenty four now jumping into all Europe. We have Bank mm -hmm. here in the Netherlands, which yes. also started it. What I still miss, but but you know I might miss a lot of information, is that those last months i see less publication about the commercial results of those banks um from from the figures which i have um i understand that 
between getting a customer and having an active customer and an active customer which is profitable, there is still a big gap, right? So uh, it, it takes time, you know, and, and hmm. going back on what I, I was said, I was saying earlier, uh, getting customers and valuable customers <coughs> is still the, 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 the key of it. And, and I'm happy to see people like Monizy who are saying, no, we'll charge you about five euro means of, the, of, of pounds. They're saying that I bring value and you're happy to pay for this value, right? So we see a new kind of model emerging where maybe venture capitalists saying, okay, that was fine, but <laughs> maybe it's time for us to stop, you know, bleeding in, in, in some areas, right? So we, I expect a lot of fights um, no longer between banks and, and fintechs, which can ally, but between and amongst fintechs themselves fighting for capital, fighting for customers, fighting for branding in the jungle of banking. Yeah, on the other end, uh, the, the combination of fintechs and banks finding themselves, as we do ourselves with uh, our cooperation with uh, with fintechs, where... and and. You, you can you can debate about the viability of business models. What what these guys do, they they look completely different at at the same time of population that we have been doing for decades, right? And and that's why I find it interesting. Muniz is looking at a specific niche which is not addressed by the banks and still finds a viable business model. If you look at a uh, a bank like Bunk or whatever. Um, uh, fighting for a mobile only proposition but with a different view on how to treat customers and if they they if they find customers that are willing to pay that might be a valuable lesson for banks because we struggle uh, in this in that same space uh, to get that kind of revenues uh, for us right so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really happy and I can tell you that the fact that there are new initiatives and whether they're in the consumer area or in the corporate area or SME, et cetera, et cetera. They have an enormous positive effect on uh, my own product management department, who's getting very nervous about all these new initiatives. <laughs> so in that sense, people people really look at this, right? And 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 um, and, and a few years ago you could we all we all got the emails from our board and saying what are we doing to address this, etc. Today we, we, we are addressing this, and, and if you look at our banking app here in uh, in the Netherlands, for instance, but also in other countries, we now get the highest ratings. We've learned valuable lessons how this works, and that the customer is the most important part, and not our products is the most important. It's about experience and mm. not about pushing a product. So, yeah. well, I, I think I, that's, the, uh, that's the best thing, isn't it? That ultimately, all of this competition has essentially led to a better outcome for the customer hasn't it the you know the differentiation around experience or really the pushing of the bar um, it really means at the end of the day the customer is the winner which I guess leads on to the uh, the next story because this search for the customer at scale you know with banking being a being a scale game you know has led uh, the house of Fraser which is a you know for you guys in the Netherlands uh, a large department store um, uh, chain that was bought by a, I think it was a Chinese uh, investment fund um, a, a fair few years ago, uh, has just invested 35 million in one of these new challenger banks tandem in the UK, um, which is which for me is a story. You know, we've we often talk to retailers and utilities and you know uh, people in Europe with millions of customers 
that have some transactional relationship with them and data that are now looking to get into fintech and payments and accounts. And, and here we've got a, um, you know, a smaller player in the, in the kind of retail space, very, you know, physical based that's investing, you know, a pretty hefty chunk of change into a new challenger bank. You know, is this something we see, you know, we think is going to happen more and more? This this one is really bizarre to me. I, I kind of find, you know, the, the the brand of House of Fraser. I know that these guys have done a, a huge amount with loyalty cards, and they've got a they've got a scheme, haven't they, from a credit card perspective with New Day. But you know, the, it feels like a very odd marriage with what I thought Tandem were being set up to be from a brand perspective, yeah. and actually what House of Fraser and their kind of appeal. Mm. Um, so, and, and actually, you know, the, the New Day partnership that House of Fraser actually um, has is a white label piece. It didn't require them to do any element of investment in that company at all. So this is a wholesale change of pace for what House of Fraser is there to do. You know, I, I wonder how much this is, you know, old House of Fraser guard or how much it is the... Uh, you know the, the the Chinese company Sam Power coming in and and really sort of defining where they want to invest and how they want to get into this market. It seems pretty like their hand has been forced, but that's reading the tea leaves. I, I guess there's uh, something about this that reminds me of the kids in the back of the car not liking what they're hearing on the radio when the, the parents are playing and that old argument. Like, is there something about? tandem wanting to do some things and they're the kids in the back of the car and house of fraser's management being the parents like no you'll listen to radio two and you'll like it you know it's i don't know i guess i'm interested in this trend you know we've got o2 doing some stuff with feed we've got house of fraser that have just invested in um tandem okay only two data points i'm sure there's some more in there i think orange we're doing something in spain um you know is this telco utility retailer you know the the massive juggernauts getting into into fintech a thing is is that something you see in the netherlands yes we we, we were in the netherlands uh, maybe not specifically no, but but, but uh, somewhere else in europe and i don't want to sound very old but <laughs> about oh. 20 yeah, about no less than 20 years ago uh when there was an in internet wave you remember you know there was another hype you remember right it's about the same thing happening now we had as as ING a partnership in in Belgium with the British Telecom, just also uh -huh. to launch. And at that time, we already had a an a, a wallet to pay on internet, right? So so it looks like everybody is coming to the point where it realizes that it needs to reinvent itself, right? And all industries, House of Fraser or O2 or all the Orange, whatever, are looking into new ways of getting customers and valuing the, 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 the customer base and the distribution power. This makes, I think, the whole difference in building a world of platforms. And the difference being made out of three things. I think first is your brand, do I get the trust of the customer? Second, mm -hmm. the customer base which you as you know, I can bring you in as ING, we can bring you to 35 million customers, right? Like this. And the third one is the distribution power which you have. Because again, you're building the MVP and, and the customer solution, it, it's, it's fine, but I think still the easy part. <clears throat> and we'll see new old companies saying, wow, there is an issue here. And I find it very refreshing for the House of Fraser to look at those kind of things, say, wow, 
we need to think about five or 10 years ahead. We need to make bets. We need to think differently than the traditional way we were doing business before. And, and, and I think we as bank are also looking into that direction of, of being a platform for our customers to solve their problems, right? Not to be a bank, but just to solve their problems. And not, and not just to be the platform, but to be at platforms where things are actually happening. And I think when you talk about people moving into different industries, uh, uh, telcos into banking, bank banks maybe not into telcos, but into other areas, it's, very, it's getting very blurry, or at least it, it looks very blurry. On the other hand, everybody is looking for the new space where both buyer and seller are meeting themselves. Um, and, and we'll see in the coming years. And I, I don't want to look as far ahead as five to 10 years. So let's keep it two, three, <laughs> difficult enough, I guess, uh, to see where, where, uh, where we're heading. Mm -hmm. uh, if, you, if you compare five years ago, nobody ever heard of Netflix. Today, everybody is basically uh, uh, on this. Facebook is fantastic. Where will it be in three years' time? So uh, the platforms are also moving. And, and right. the speed, the agility, the agility et cetera, that, that is something to watch for. And the second, we're going to see many, many moves up and down the value chain, sidesteps, et cetera, taking over. But I don't want to bet yet. And that's that's basically... <laughs> spread, betting spread betting. It's always a good idea, isn't it? You bet bet on a few different things. And I think that's what many companies are doing in this space. But I think the, the interesting thing maybe in this one as well is that different to when we saw BBVA invest in Atom, is um, they haven't actually quantified what the 35 million pound is actually for. So there's no talk here about equity. So it's not clear whether House of Fraser have taken equity mm. in tandem or whether this is a, just a partnership because how it's worded is that uh, it's about offering exclusive banking tools and payment methods to, to House of Fraser customers. So this might just be a partnership. Mm. Um, I, you know, I think this is definitely one to watch and it's bravo to House of Fraser for making such a bold move to get into banking. But um, let's wait and see what comes of this one next. Jason's point is a good one, which is there is demand in the traditional economies for people with millions of customers to offer new, better financial services types of products in a box. And banks that think and or financial services companies that offer things in that way are probably going to be of interest. And again, we're foreshadowing a bit, but when you look at what um, Ant Financial has done, you get a lot of companies that are offering the bits of banking rather than a bank. So you're not coming to them for everything, but you're just taking the bits you need and you're building much deeper experiences and relationships with your customer rather than just, I'll take a payment from you. Mm. I'll set up a recurring payment from you. And you want it to recur just, oh, you want a month off from your recurring. Okay, sure. we'll work around. Like they want that adaptability. In but, but I think that in the best way, the, or the best outcomes of this are where lending and insurance and can I afford this and the payment and all of those things that are kind of financial that come into transactions do live where the customer is making that that happen. Exactly. But I worry, but I worry that this is a me too world mm -hmm. that actually will have too many utilities and telcos and retailers and everyone else say, hold on a minute, you know, we want our own payment card make me a card and an app and we're going to get into fintech so yes. I, I you know i worry that there's a there's a danger there yeah but maybe if we look at what happened for instance in car financing uh, over the last years this used to be a traditional banking business but we've seen all the manufacturers being ahead in the value chain to capture a lot of this market just because they want to sell a car 
and they, they know that the best way to sell an upgraded car is just to finance it, right? So they've mm. built the, the Volkswagen Bank uh, and, and all the other banks, which are key in the, in the profitability of their mm. own business, right? So uh, coming back to, to your point, Jason, I think this is, this is right. This is where um, we will see where is the customer need fulfilled and then we just plug as uh, simply, as, as quickly as possible, the financial solution, which must be cleared away you know, in, in, a, in a second. Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, it's amazing. And it, if anything, I'm going back to your metaphor of the the fintech jungle. It, you know, the jungle is where life forms of all sizes are you know growing and developing and competing with each other. And we seem to have moved from quite a uh, a staid and um, you know traditional environment with players you could point to to uh, you know to new products and services coming out of the ground everywhere and i guess a big part of that is that it has to be capital and who's funding this and i guess it leads on quite nicely to our next story around china launching a 1.5 billion a billion dollar fintech fund that's a phenomenal amount of money isn't it i mean um we've seen recently that um a report by dbs and ernst and young ranked china as the number one fintech destination overtaking london new york and silicon valley we've seen that in the last year um, Credit China FinTech, China's in, uh, reported that um, there was $8.8 billion spent um, investing in FinTech. I mean, this dwarfs the near, we were talked earlier about all of tech in France got 800 million euros. All of tech in the UK got 900 million euros. All of FinTech in China got $8.8 billion. I mean, that just dwarfs anything we've seen. There, there's another fund, and they mentioned another fund in, the, in a FinExtra article, um, the, the fund launch follows a, a similar but larger fintech fund in October 2016, the Zongguan Fund of Funds, which was worth $4.3 billion. I mean, how do you even spend that? Uh, yeah. How do you manage a fund yeah, of that size? So, so I think what they do is they invest in VCs locally in different markets, and then those VCs actually spread it out. So these funds fund other funds. It's it's, it's all very inception. But, it's, uh, <laughs> but I think, so when I was looking at this, I had a look at um, an article in Let's Talk Payments, and it's called Fintech in China, a 53-point summary. Um, so if you stick that into Google, you should find it. And, and point 18 here for me is the real key. So financial services have emerged as adjacent categories, sometimes bigger than the core business by leveraging transaction data and communities, which is exactly what we were just talking about. So Baidu does search and advertising. They use big data for better search, financial product distribution, and so on. But then what they sell is mutual funds based on search information. Uh, there's uh, Tencent. They do gaming and communication. They use big data for banking, taxis, and movie tickets. As a result, they can cross-sell financial product distribution. Alibaba does e-commerce. They use big data for credit scoring. As a result, they can sell lending products based on shopping history. Like This, to me, is the real macro trend in fintech that that we haven't really seen the banks or the retailers in Europe or the US really grasp. This is yes. the real story of China for me. And actually, this is the lesson that we need to take from, from all of that investment. I, I agree. I yeah, I can't agree more than that. Yeah, I think this is this is so true. And you see some Chinese bank now 
not begging, but going to those guys to say, can I use your data and your scoring models just mm -hmm. to get also uh, my, my landing right, right? So this is just like the world upside down in mm -hmm. five years, right? It's, it's not a 25 years trend, but once you get 400, 500, 800 million customers, then you really talk big data, right? And, yeah, and we've seen this before, but uh, we've seen this, uh, let's say, 15 years ago, where banks and telcos tried to uh, cooperate with each other in Europe, very difficult models and how to do it. And in China, China Union Pay, China, the telecom, they simply joined forces and bang, they were there. Right, so in that sense, and, and with that skill that they operate, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is indeed one of the big things. And we talk about Asia in, at, at a later stage. Look at what Alipay is doing right now, moving into Europe. Guys, we better make sure that we're there ourselves. I think it's right? a, an interesting one. I think the you know the defense by global banking organizations has generally been data, money, and customers. And if you kind of look at actually these these people who are developing these things, they're actually more, way more sophisticated with data usage. They've got more money to invest uh, and they have significantly larger customer bases than anybody in, in the banking space. So it, it is just an amazing turn of events that actually if they yeah. choose to do so and choose to kind of get into this market, then they're almost unstoppable, really, aren't they? So um, we'll, we'll have to see what happens next on this one. Hey? And, and, and the whole economy is is running at a fintech pace right like if you compare this to europe or the states we're still you know in a in a in a pace which is much slower right so they make change they hire people they go they move they get the commitment so they also enjoy this where now legacy industries they skipped, they skipped the whole they skipped the whole era right so. yeah the the, uh, the kyc and compliance here no no, no that's not what i mean i don't know i don't no, know no, in, no, the, no. in the end that, that We'll get to them. Uh, I think uh, I think Chris Skinner uh, describes this as what would it be like if PayPal, uh, if you add Amazon, Facebook, and PayPal together uh, yeah. and launch that as a service, yeah. um, you know that's uh, that's just crazy. Uh, I think what interests me is whether we'll see any uh, defensive moves by you know the likes of Amazon, you know PayPal, yeah. Facebook. Yeah. You know, in order to to make a similar approach, given that the big Chinese, you know, uh, conglomerates or the the new uh, fintech mega unicorns, there's got to be a word for that, surely. Octocorn or something. Super unicorn is that a thing? That's a thing. It's, right. a, it's a company of ten billion or more. Wow. I, I still think there's a better word. We'll we'll, uh, we'll have to ask for. Um, suggestions on Twitter mm -hmm. for what's 10 times a unicorn. Uh, I, I guess it's interesting to see whether we'll see any of those moves because we've not really seen, you know, the fears of, uh, of banks around what happens if Google gets into it or Apple or Facebook really emerge, have we? So one of the things I really find interesting is that Amazon try to create their own payments capability. Facebook tried to create their own payments capability. There was talk of them buying PayPal, but they built their own. There's, there's this uh, kind of thing where because they are so proud of their own engineering talent that I think there's there's a bit of hubris and they, they want to build the answer themselves rather than, you know, if it's a small company, they'll acquire it. If it's Instagram and it's strategic and it's growing eyeballs, they understand they need to acquire it. If it's payments, it's like that's something on the edge. We'll just have some engineers build it. And actually, yeah. maybe there is some M&A that needs to come to these 
10, 15 year old tech companies. I And there was a one of the reports I was seeing is that 2017 may be a big year for mergers and acquisitions given the bull run in the US. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yes, yes. But um, the question whether it would be Mark would sell his company to Jeff or, and Jeff <laughs> would be the boss of Mark. You know, I think eventually it all ends up this way, right? And I'm not yeah, sure well, this. Maybe they're in, maybe they're in some up. back room with Trump. Hold yeah. on. Uh, let's see how this all goes. So it brings us <laughs> to the next topic, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I guess the, the next topic is. I'm trying to think of a good link. I guess it's uh, it's that putting VC money in and putting investments into things is not a good way to spend your money compared to investing in Bitcoin over the last month. And I've got to put my hand up and say, I sold way too early. Like it sort of Christmas-ish, I thought this this is all looking a bit bit hot, a bit, uh, yeah. a, you know, a bit dangerous. I'll get out of Bitcoin. I have lost a or not, re, you know, not got a ton of money by getting out too early. Yes. Simon, tell us about Bitcoin. So in the last 12 months, Bitcoin has been easily the best performing currency on the planet. It kind of risen gradually from about $400 at the beginning of January to hovering around $950 at the moment. The real story is that there was a J-curve in the last week and a half. And there's a really interesting correlation. China, just in the past few weeks, has announced an upper limit on the amount of uh, Chinese currency, the renminbi, that you can clear out of China. So therefore, you have a lot of high net worth individuals trying to get around to move money out of China. There's just a need for capital to flow out of a given country. And these high net worth individuals want to move their money around. Now, there are lots of other ways to do it than Bitcoin. Mm. It just so happens some of them appear to be choosing Bitcoin. The correlation of um, kind of people trying to move money out of China and the rise in price in Bitcoin is almost exact. But then there's a second story that comes in. So whilst that's caused a real spike in the Bitcoin price in the last two to three weeks since this initiative has been brought in by the Chinese, the second thing that's happened is speculators have come back from their Christmas break, taken a look at the Bitcoin price and gone, oh, Bitcoin's booming. Let's all pile in. <laughs> and so therefore, they, they really spiked the price in the last sort of 24 hours. So in and I say this on the 5th of January, between the if you go to Coindesk.com and go have a look at the price on the uh, 2nd, 3rd, 4th of January 2017, it goes from about $800 all the way up to $1,140. You're torturing me. Yeah. <laughs> but then this morning between sort of uh, 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. in the United Kingdom, it went from $1,150 back down to $950. So there's a really interesting question now. It's hovering around the 950 What is the fair value of a Bitcoin? Is it, you know, is it something that is just purely speculation? Is it a Ponzi scheme? Or has it really found a fair value? My own personal speculation is fair value is somewhere between 850 and 950. Maybe it's a little bit overpriced, but actually we're talking about an asset that is scarce like gold. There's a limited supply and it's it's predictable. The value of Bitcoin should steadily increase over the next sort of 25 but years. But it's not predictable. You can't you can't call this a currency when it's you know it spikes that far and drops so fast. But it's the speculation around that and how people are treating it. Like the fair value underneath what's happening. So you can look at the ocean currents or you can look at the waves on the top of the ocean. Looking at the waves, because the currency is so small, you only see these wild swings. You don't see the trend line. If you zoom out and look at the trend line, Bitcoin's price has been steadily increasing throughout its entire history at, at almost a linear progression. 
So to me, it, it still makes sense as uh, almost being an alternative to gold. It is digital gold, and it plays that role really, really well. But definitely, you know, if you don't, if you're a listener of FinTech Insider and you don't have a Bitcoin wallet, go download a Bitcoin wallet and have a play. But just because it's probably one of the most interesting things that's happened in finance in the last you know, hundred years. And if you're not playing along, you're missing. You're missing out. However, we have to say this is not financial advice. We are not really registered <laughs> as a. Uh... <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, what do you guys think? Where do you stand in the uh, Bitcoin? Are you uh, are you members of the religion or uh, or detractors or what do you think? Well, I I think what what you said. If 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 a currency is moving twenty percent, ten percent within a few hours. It's a bit difficult to call it a currency. On the other hand, we started looking into Bitcoin, blockchain, I think three, four years ago. So it's still on my radar screen. Um, but we've moved a bit away, to be honest, from, from Bitcoin and, and stepped into uh, the blockchain uh, space. And not, mm-hmm. not at least also because regulators seem to be, in that sense, a bit more distant from Bitcoin and, and being a bit more favorable to, uh, to blockchain. So... And this this is why we 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 although we look at it we we we're a bit hesitant around actually mm. actively stepping in. But hey, yeah. personally, I'm following what CoinDesk is doing and producing and seeing etc. So uh, it it still got my interest. But we need to be careful, but simply because regulators uh, say to us, blockchain is is great, but please stay away from Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So and I, think and I haven't seen in any good fundamental reason since its inception. Yeah, well, besides beside making money over Christmas. Uh, besides <laughs> making money by Christmas, besides, you know, hiding things which you... So I think I'm still waiting for the underlier behind the currency. So for to, me, the, the one is um, exotic currencies. So yeah. getting in and out of exotic currencies is expensive and difficult. So if you are somebody who's from a country that doesn't have a major currency pair, let's say you're from Kenya, um, then there's a service called BitPesa. Now, BitPesa allows you to exchange your local currency for Kenyan shillings. But what they actually do is acquire euros, dollars um, via the Bitcoin network. Um, but they have a network of partners that they will, will allow to front that. And then they'll sell Kenyan shillings and vice versa. They'll, they'll act on the other side of it. So they, they manage pools of liquidity and they just use Bitcoin as a rail for that. But what they are is, is a perfectly legitimate regulated business in Kenya. Yeah. A business that's been regulated elsewhere with, as, as a money service business. So I think what's interesting to me is there's a story here about exotic currencies for, from a Bitcoin perspective. There's a story as well about just adding KYC over the top of Bitcoin. I mean, it's very easy to ask for uh, KYC information. And the, the really interesting thing about Bitcoin is you can see every transaction between everybody in the network ever throughout history, ever. And so therefore, if I've got an identity of a wallet and somebody has given me that wallet, then I can see everything they've ever done. If I haven't got their identity, I can still see everything they've ever done. And when they take the money out of the system, I can catch them super easily. So I think regulators' fear about the KYC AML is actually misplaced. I think the regulators' concern is much more about currency supply. It's actually about central bank currency supply and the ability to manage their local economies. It's power and control. No, but I fully agree. And, and, And that's why I think the whole attention of banks shifted away from Bitcoin to the Bitcoin infrastructure. Being yeah. blockchain, right? And and because uh, uh, we're funding one of a very small startups here in uh, the Netherlands that try to uh, build um, a payments application based on Bitcoin. 
after, uh, let's say, trying this for three, four months, they pivoted. What a great word. They <laughs> pivoted and said, let's move away from Bitcoin because it's giving us much more trouble with regulators and, and with people who want to invest in us than, than using Java or whatever kind of technology. So, mm -hmm. yeah, well, I, I think, Simon, in hindsight, in hindsight, everybody will uh, agree with you that we may miss an opportunity over there. On the other end, if you ask somebody, would you put all your life savings there? Nobody's going to do that. Uh, so in that sense, it is indeed an interesting market. And people have become millionaires by speculating uh, with uh, the Bitcoin, right? If I would have stepped into the market when the Bitcoin was around 100 euro and now 1,000, my goal, <laughs> I, would be sitting, I would be sitting two floors on, uh, above you. <laughs> but Jason did with the 100 stuff. Yeah. Don't. I didn't sit all your savings. Oh yeah, I wish. Oh, yeah, no, I, I had a bit, but uh, no, you know, just to play with. But still, it hurts. It yeah. still stings yeah. that I got out early. But I guess I want to challenge the, you know, the exotic currencies piece because while I see that being, you know, a great use case for for um, distributed ledgers, I don't want to be sp sending money to my aunt in. Venezuela and have it drop by 10% by before the money gets there. But so I can see Ripple, I can see, you know, uh, fiat digital currencies that have stability, but something that, that spikes so heavily, I just don't see how that fits with that use case. So bear in mind, this volatility is, is actually a relatively recent thing. The volatility of Bitcoin, if you exclude the last month, is actually less than most currencies around the world. It's been less volatile than sterling. So would you be willing to send sterling as the transfer currency? Yeah, of course you would. So Bitcoin outside of this one blip is actually become, it's maturing. And I think there's something to be said for that. But taking a step back, as much as I sound bullish about Bitcoin at the moment, it has been a fun ride. I do absolutely see the reason why banks would look at the underlying technology. And I think the subjects have become two very different things. The subject number one, which is what are the next generation of things that are being built that are experimental, which I wouldn't recommend anybody puts their life savings into, but are very, very interesting and you should play with. Bitcoin, I would put firmly in that category. Ethereum, I would put firmly in that category. But distributed ledger and or smart contracts has become something that looks very, very different to Bitcoin. Yeah. It actually has a lot more to do with you know financial services plumbing. And it's coming from more that direction. It's almost coming from the other side of the room. And I think sometimes people look at distributed ledger and they go, that's not Bitcoin, it's no good. But actually, it is entirely different. And banks should be looking at how can they can make plumbing better between each other. That's, that's only a good thing. Well, with that, um, I'd like to thank our guests and thank the guys in the room. And we'll throw to our sponsors. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Okay, so thanks to our sponsors. 
Um, we're back with Mark and Benoit from ING uh, to talk about transaction banking, which is honestly something I know so little about. I, you know, retail is my is my area. Transaction <laughs> banking just seems like a uh, a very different world. So, first off, for me, if not some of the listeners, can you give us the the one hundred and one? The what a, what is global transaction banking or, or global transaction services, I guess, as you, as you would call it? Well, actually, actually, I came from retail. So uh, the good news is you can you can learn it and the basics are, <laughs> are, are not that different. Do you think there's a future for me in, in global, global transaction banking? Um, that's a bridge too far. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> You're from fintech, so be nice. Huh? So but to, give you, to give you an idea what uh, what we're basically doing, um, uh, this is working for corporates, large corporates, and also financial institutions. Our product offering ranges from payments to cash management to working capital type of solutions like trade finance, supply. We call it working capital management. Uh, that, that is basically what we offer to uh, customers. And in the retail world, you would, would call it a current account, a savings account, and maybe a bit of uh, uh, consumer credit, those type of things. So the short term of the balance, that is basically what we're providing to large corporates, international corporates uh, across the world. So, so it would almost be different words for the current account, the savings, the, the, the quick loan, the, the revolving credit, the it, working capital and transaction. It, it's just different words, but it's the same thing. But instead of being for you or me, it's for Coca-Cola and for Pepsi and for any other drinks company you can think of. Uh, and is it fair... I- I did a little research, and it, it seemed that global transaction banking services were was very much viewed as the uh, the poor sibling to investment banking for a long time. You know, it, you know the the flyboys were making their millions, you know, crashing companies together, whereas global transaction services was really sort of providing that that backbone to corporate finance. But that seems to have turned around. Uh, is global transaction services sexy? Well, actually, uh, uh, some people have called it. You you went from a zero to a hero these days. <laughs> so maybe a different word for for sexy, but I think where so many of these new te- uh, technological developments, regulatory developments, changes in the markets, etc. So sort of we call it a bit the eye of the storm, where everything comes together, ranging from blockchain to the new Alipay's, what's happening in in the acquiring world. So it it is really getting getting. Absolutely, sec- and and don't forget data analytics, right? Underneath this, mm-hmm. so yes, it is absolutely sexy. And and today, if you compare the people that we're employing today, they come from totally different backgrounds. We got people coming that used to work at CERN in Switzerland. We got people uh, that uh, used to work at fintech startups, etc. So we get a, a totally different mix of uh, of people around it. But in 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 essence. It is actually following what's happening in the consumer market, right? Much more customer-driven, much more customer experience, etc. In a world with much more complexity, and you know, the business-to-business market is 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 much more an exception type of uh, of business, uh, where the consumer market is more a mass type of approach, and that that makes it the combination makes it first very interesting, and on the other hand, very very difficult. So when you're um, sort of offering banking services to a large company. 
and you, you're not offering it directly to the CEO, you're typically offering it to the Treasury Department. So like, could you explain what a Treasury Department is, what a Treasury Department does, and, and how you guys kind of interface with that, and, and just kind of you know, help our listeners understand what Treasury is, because I think that's kind of a really crucial point. It, for it, it's a fax machine, right? You, you send them faxes. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, very, in very simple words, the treasurer makes sure there's enough money to pay. Uh, it, it takes care of uh, uh, the working capital. Do we have enough money on our balances to pay accounts in multiple countries, to pay suppliers, to pay employees, etc., etc.? That was their basic, um, uh, let's say, uh, business uh, before the crisis. After the crisis, something else happened, and, and especially in the beginning of the crisis, when there was a, sh a shortage of credit, the CFO and the CEO started to look at the treasure as well. Can you optimize the working capital? Because a basic lesson is you, you shouldn't have too much excess balances, right? You steer towards zero, and the better you can do that, the better, uh, the less dependent you were on credit. And that made them step into products like supply chain finance, uh, factoring, Mm -hmm. uh, even trade, et cetera, et cetera, because that can help to optimize their working capital position, right? If you can pay, if you can pay the people that you need to pay, let's say a week later, and you get your money from the people who uh, owe you money a week earlier, hey, mm -hmm. suddenly you got enough money to pay the salaries, et cetera, et cetera. It's as simple as that. So it would be the same as if I could get your employer to pay you a week earlier and to get the <laughs> get your landlord to take money off you a week later. I mean, it's. <laughs> That sounds really good. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> like that. But imagine the scale, right? We we are helping companies that have twelve hundred working uh, businesses spread over Europe, with twenty five hundred people allowed to make transactions on that, etc. And, and imagine that that type of complexity. Uh, some of those companies have have a thousand bank accounts spread over the world for you have all kinds of currency risks um, where time zones play a role, where you're not allowed to take out money out of a country. So you're making large profit, but you're not, you're not able to get that money out of that country. Hey, if there's a billion stuck in a country and you need a billion in another country, how do you do that? And yeah, that's, so it's, where, it's that's where cash pooling that. and that's where cash pooling and those kind of products come in to help them to mm -hmm. bridge that. We take a bit of the risk there. We finance them in another country and they can do their business. Is this helpful? Oh, definitely. And I am fascinated with that sort of <laughs> the parallel between what people would see as retail products and uh, and what's happening in, in terms of fintech and competition driving real-time, intelligent, contextual finance for individuals. And in fact, we were in uh, Africa not, not so long ago talking to a guy who was um, leading transaction banking down there. And he was talking about the, uh, you know, the need for a, you know, a treasurer to be told or to be alerted to have a real-time decision point of, you know, you're running out of money or you've got too much and we can do A, B or C for you. How do, you know, and to have automated services to do that, very much like a retail bank, you know, the, the future of retail seems like a, um, you know, a great path. Is, is that something you'll see? Oh, absolutely. It's the money manager, right? Yeah. Making sure uh, you don't have too much on your balance, but enough. And if there's something coming, and that's where data analytics is coming and trying to predict how much cash you need in which country, in which account, for which type of payment. Yeah, that, that is fantastic. If you talk to a treasurer and say we're able, and we are able right now with an accuracy of 80, 90% to predict what's coming, 
yeah, that's going to help them make that decision. The bad news, it's still 90%. That it's not good enough. It should be 99 point whatever. Uh, and that, that's why we always say, if you put all your money with us, then we can help you. By the way, that is a trend that is that is um, because most of uh, the large corporates spread their uh, um, uh, their businesses mm. over multiple banks, whether it be regions or time zones or whatever. And that's what the crisis has taught them as well. And also, uh, when you talk about large developments in these markets, consolidation is one of them. Uh, we've seen RBS stepping out of the market uh, two years ago, out of this mm. specific market. Yeah, Imagine you're a corporate treasurer and you have to do a mandatory migration from bank A to B. These mandatory, these migrations take up to six to 12 months. Re new account numbers, you have to inform all your suppliers, all your, uh, it, it is a nightmare for these guys. So mm -hmm. what they've done over the past uh, period, I think most of the large corporates have at least three to four of these type of banks that do these type of services for them. Wow. And, yeah, I was reading that um, 2015 Royal Bank of Scotland went from 38 countries to 13 countries. That's yeah. what they did. Yeah, a yeah, massive shock went through uh, went through uh, the market, because at that stage they were a top five player at least in Europe, and they were pretty big also in Asia. But imagine having to tell as a bank that you're no longer providing these type of services, and they got two years to get to get. If you're a well-funded company, you're doing well. It's very nice. But if you're a bit into trouble, try to find a new home here. Yeah, and then yeah. and, and maybe adding on on this, uh, we are seeing a similar trend on the retail customers, right? Having different bank accounts in different places, but also wanting in the light of PSD2 to manage them. So uh, in, in, in one place where you can also transfer money easily from one to the other. Yeah. And so we've just recently launched a, uh, uh, an app in the UK. So I hope you have enjoyed already uh, it. And if not, I think I would encourage you to do so. It's called YOLT. Do it. Uh, mm -hmm. and you might have heard of it, but is this also um, the first aggregator where we can have or you can have an overview of all your banking accounts, but also bringing you insights in how you're managing your money? As, as Mark was saying, what will be the balance in a couple of weeks or so how much money do I need to have to get to the next payday, right? So this is the way we are trying also to use this technology to help our customers and empower them and, and making sure that they can manage better their finance. Yeah. So, so I, I, think, thing, I'm, so, I think complimentary to what, to what uh, Mark said. <laughs> and it seems that, um, you know, I, I will definitely give out, give uh, Yolt a try. Um, I guess the, the parallels though are interesting in terms of, you know, quite often we see quite a competitive market and a consumer push in terms of digital to delivering these services. Is that really the reality in, in global transaction banking? Is there is there really that push from or pull, I guess, from large corporations to uh, to deliver these new services? Um, or are they handling it by a software or, or their, their individual staff? Oh, absolutely. The push is there, but let's also be clear, the reality, especially on the large business and large corporates, is, is a bit more gruesome. Um, it is difficult because all these large corporates, including their banks, started pretty early with these type of uh, services, which means legacy, which means that moving to the next stage is a bit more difficult. But you can clearly see that what happened in the consumer space, the fintechs, and what we're used to with Google, Apple, et cetera, is getting a huge push into this market as uh, uh, as well. 
Um, I, I can still remember three years ago, we decided to uh, build our, uh, our, let's say, our banking uh, internet portal that we had for, for, uh, for our, uh, our corporates. We said, we need to put this on a mobile as well. And everybody said, corporates are ne never going to use a mobile. Are you crazy, etc. Today, 30% of the corporate treasurers say, where's the thing on my mobile? I need that mobile right now. So in that sense, we are getting used to as as consumers to fast, instant, immediate, mm -hmm. uh, uh, etc. And that's and you can clearly see that pull and that push from our side as well. So exactly the same is happening, but it's a bit more difficult because what what do you do when you got 1,200 people that are able to sign and to access an account and they have different levels? Uh, so one people can just look into the account, the other is able to do 10,000 pounds, the other is doing 20,000, blah, 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 blah. So it's it's a bit more complicated to uh, to put it, but we see exactly the same type of push, exactly the same time of digitization. So it's taking a bit more time, I guess, but, what, but when things are starting to move, they're going to move really, really fast. Mm -hmm. So there's something interesting here about the, the two points you're making. One is around the underlying complexity of transaction banking, of having many banks. I want an aggregated view across all of my banks. Some of my banks are closing on me, so now I need to move banks as well. I'm using uh, my own as a corporate, you know, I'm Coca-Cola or I'm you know, O2 or Unilever, and I'm using some old systems myself. So I need to upgrade those old systems before I can upgrade to which bank I'm talking to. And on top of that, well, I'm using maybe even some paper processes in some countries somewhere, and I want a real-time dashboard of all of that on my mobile right now. I think the challenge that global transaction banks have is, is trying to make that utopia become a reality. Is there something where fintech can help? Is there you know, something where fintech can start to be a supplier to transaction banks? Can it be somebody that offers parts of the solution? What, what are you guys seeing, and, and have oh, you... Oh, I, I can be very short on this. Absolutely is uh, mm -hmm. the case. And you see multiple areas where, by the way, it, it was not, it, it is not new, right? There are already specialized uh, players that are able to offer portals to banks, uh, which they didn't buy. Uh, we've, we've recently built what we thought, what we think is one of the uh, uh, great new things, virtual cash management, which is uh, making cash management, bringing it even a step further, making use of one single account. But And there we use the fintech to help us to build that. And instead of building this in, let's say, 12 months, we've we done this in half of the time. But the fact, by the way, that we are also working agile ourselves uh, is, is helping tremendously to click with that, uh, with that type of person. But you see them in multiple areas, whether it's in user uh, user experience whether it's in reg tech talking about the next big thing by the way kyc cdd etc if you're in transaction banking you're in this business as well right mm -hmm. so aml fraud those kind of thing there are multiple fintechs uh, helping us and uh, uh, stepping into this market and we're more than happy to uh, to talk to them to use them and uh, and, and 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 help them further so i, I guess we believe in that space I guess because it's such a an insider's game, sort of behind the the scenes, it's not something that the you know the two guys in the garage is, are going to think of building something for, or indeed you know do VCs understand you know what's happening and what to fund? Uh, I, we worked with a um, 
with a French bank on a, uh, a kind of some innovation work hackathons around where they came up with what they saw were their big challenges uh, in order to almost challenge the market. So, uh, so I, I guess my question is, how does ING or how do how do how does global transaction banking, you know, engage fintechs in in addressing the problems that you see? Mm-hmm. I think it's more a question for yes. you. Uh, 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 today we're partnering with uh, almost 70, 70 fintechs, right, worldwide. So uh, the way we're approaching it is mainly uh, no partnering, <laughs> not being a venture capitalist, right? So we're not, we've taken the uh, the approach of uh, bringing the value which we can bring to those guys uh, and not being a venture capitalist. We want to bring some solution to our customers. So this is what we've done. And I would say the first biggest area in which those partnerships are being made is payments or transaction services, right? Also because they were ahead of the pack in the digitalization and transformation three, four, five years ago. So this, they, they, I don't know whether I should say the benefit or the problem of starting digitalization and disruption much earlier, but this is an area where we absolutely uh, uh, focusing on. But there are multiple areas. If you talk about the trade business, for instance, uh, letters of credit, mm. one of the oldest things that banks are doing, there are so many specialized uh, businesses coming up uh, coming up right now that are creating new business platforms where you can upload your e-invoicing. Uh, and then at the same time, banks are trying to, or, or other finance companies are trying to help you there. So instead of uh, most large corporates, they, they basically, uh, 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 when they want to do an FX transaction, they don't go to a single bank. They go to a platform, right? And then ask for a quote and the one who gets it. So in that sense, helping us in that space, looking very much uh, uh, into that area, uh, the, 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 the platformization of the world, yeah, that is our view as well, what's going to happen with uh, with transaction banking. And, and, and the fact that we're uh, with PSD2 coming, RegTech around us, all this regulation. Don't forget Basel and the impact that it's going to have on our business as um, as well. To do this without fintechs, but it indeed it's a specialized business. And what you see is that typically players who used to work in this industry, they join up. Uh, so a specialized uh, a specialized player coming, let's say from the legal space, teams up with a guy who has a great IT experience with a UX guy, etc. And together they make a startup, then try to get some credibility, you get some other people on board. And those are the typical startups that you uh, that you see. You're smiling guys, you see- It's like you my mind. I, I just wrote on the laptop here. So who are the founders of these companies? Because I had a hunch there's somebody that's worked in transaction banking before. Uh, because you know the problems. But I think there's a lot of talent out there that could be attacking transaction banking. And transaction banking is at least as big as retail banking, if not bigger. This is a phenomenally large market for entrepreneurs to be attacking, for VCs to be interested in. I think they've missed a trick. So tell our audience, you know, what are the problems in transaction banking? What are the things at the market level that sucks for everybody and needs to be better? I also mentioned, uh, uh, let's say, KYC, CDD. So onboarding customers is one of the big issues, right? And that combined with uh, anti-money laundering uh, uh, requests, financial economic crime, etc. The demands that we're getting and that we're also having to put on our customers are extremely burdensome. 
Uh, so we're asking copies of passports of, of heads of, uh, uh, of, 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 of boards of different banks. And we're not the only one because if these guys are banking with six banks, those six banks are going to ask exactly the same, maybe slightly different. So this is one of the big issues, I think, uh, that we, uh, that we uh, encounter. One of the other big things, I think, that our corporates are encountering, they're trying to be, let's say, they don't want to be dependent on one bank. They want to be as independent as possible. So that's one of the other challenges. How can we help them? And that's where, by the way, PSD2 steps in. You can now become an aggregator yourself, right, as a bank. So um, that is one of the other areas. The third one, third dimension is fraud in general, which is not typically transaction banking, but is is merely the consequence of a digitizing market where cybercrime and cyber fraud is going to play a very large, uh, very large role. Um, and then I think in general, what is complex still is that the regulation, the rules of the games in different countries are so different. So trying to create a very consistent way of operating through all these countries is extremely, extremely uh, uh, difficult. And of course, people talk about international payments and it's, Instant, uh, yeah. it takes too long, et cetera, et cetera. So I think those are, those are the key elements that we're seeing right now in terms of hurdles. And from our perspective, one of the other issues is this market may seem interesting, but if you look at the negative interest rate environment right now, the money and the margins that banks are making are getting smaller and smaller yeah. and smaller. And at the same time, you have to invest more to become easier, simpler, agile, more customer focused, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's why I call this the eye of the storm. Mm. Um, but in that sense, it is not different than what we're doing right now on the retail, uh, on the retail space. The level of complexity is maybe a bit higher, but I always try to bring this back to the essence, what we're trying to do here. Um, and that is and that is coming back to it needs to be easy, simple, doing business, opening accounts. I would you talked about uh, the guys from Moniz opening an account in three minutes. Try to do this on the corporate space in three minutes. <laughs> it, they would they would already be happy with three days. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. I, it, there's a really interesting well, nugget. It is it is a different. So the challenges in broader sense are, of course. Margins are uh, are under uh, are under pressure. There is overcapacity in the market right now. You see that uh, uh, revenues are difficult uh, for a lot of banks who are based their business models on interest income instead of fee business. So that is one of the other challenges that we're seeing. And then the sheer complexity, regulatory uh, challenges that you that you get over that combined mm -hmm. with. Uh, the threat of cyber fraud, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that makes this uh, yeah. that makes this business uh, very difficult. And you can see there's a consolidation ongoing mm -hmm. in the market. Banks are stepping out. Uh, they are consolidating. And at the same time, uh, uh, we are being attacked. And maybe that's a big word, but you can see some, uh, some new players who just attack niches. Nobody wants to be a full transaction bank. People want to take out, let's say, the supply chain finance part, or maybe a bit of the, uh, the chunks. Uh, yeah, yeah, the nice chunks where you still make money. So in that sense, it's not really different uh, from from what we're seeing on the retail side. Hmm. So people are attacking the the small chunks. It's it's very very similar. There was a really nice nugget in there um, on PSD two because I think the PSD two conversation in fintech generally all about APIs, all about moving your data from one bank to another as a consumer. This applies to corporates. 
what opportunities are there in the corporate space to be able to do that? You know, I think it goes way beyond um, just you know the corporate's bank account data itself. What if I could marry the corporate's data with the retail customer's data? What mashups of services can I start to offer then? I, I don't know if that's possible. I don't know how I get the permissions for that. But like, I haven't really seen anything in that space. Maybe there's some interesting things that you guys have seen out there or that, that you guys know yeah. about. But that, to me, is where things get really uh, exciting. That, that's, that's certainly a very interesting way of looking forward. Right? On one hand, we have retail customers. On the other hand, we have our uh, corporate customers, right? So. Mm. First, you can also link the corporate customers with the corporate customers, right? They all are sometimes suppliers from each other, right? So there is a lot of value, again, in in, in our assets, i.e. Mm. our customer base and, and the knowledge we have. And if you want to go into this transaction business, this is just at the core of everything, right? Yeah. Everything ends up with a transaction, right? Whether you mm. buy a short or you buy a company or whatever, there is always a money movement there. And if you are the core of it, um, you want to do it because, as 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 Mark mentioned, you know, it's it's heavy duty on the compliance. There's a lot of work. There's legacy, many overcapacity. But what you want is volume, and you want also an added value behind it, which is not linked to the payment, right? So, and and you get back to the data mm. idea of of being at the core. Uh, we have at the core of our strategy being a primary. Uh, uh, going for primary customers, right? So, and primary customers are the one who are doing those kind of transactions. transactions. And, yeah. and we want those guys just not only for the product, but also because behind that, there's a lot of value being your mm. the home banker, right? So we need to look at a transaction business, not as such, but as part of the key relationship with customers. And in, in to that extent, we can bring corporate customers to corporate customers, maybe retail customers to corporate customers. And we go back to the idea of, of what Mark was saying about the platform uh, and, and playing that role intensively in the coming years. That's it. And I think that that is that is a good point. So we see the same kind of trend that you see on the retail side where platforms are becoming more important. So it is important to have a very good offering, let's be clear. Um, and 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 talking about offering, you can think of this as an offering from a bank, but we like to see ourselves more as a tech company than than as a bank. But a tech company with benefits. Uh, uh, so <laughs> oh yes, oh. I think we have might have a contender there for the name of the episode. Uh, tech company with benefits. No, but a world where you come to a single bank to get all your stuff and make sure you do it is going to change, right? We have to move to where the true action between our corporates and their customers is actually happening. And that's where you can build total total new businesses that, that still don't exist right now. And I gave you the example of FX platforms and e-invoicing platforms. I can also give you an example where people used to make a very large distinguishment between cards business and payments business, etc. We've created an, an organization where we don't make that distinction distinction any longer, right? If if a payment moves through a card platform or something is financed through a card platform instead of a supply chain, I couldn't care less. What is the cheapest and best way that we can offer to our customer or what is the best quality that he wants? So yeah. we're, we're now working with virtual cards where actually large uh, uh, airliners are using a credit card to refuel themselves in whatever Dubai, etc., that they're lending, it's it's you would never think about yeah. getting fuel in for a few hundred thousand euro uh, uh, on a, on a credit card, right? But 
because the infrastructure is there and we have the ability to use that, we're starting to make strange and, and new combinations of possibilities. And by putting all these people together, people from the cars business, the payments business, the supply chain finance business, etc., they start to discover all kinds of opportunities they haven't seen before, working with customers, can you solve this? And then we start looking, instead of working in those let's say predefined old stage type of silos. We're now working from towards the customer experience. How can we solve this with what we got? And if we don't got it, let's get out. Benoit has a fantastic platform where if we have an issue, we can post a question and let 70 FinTech think about this instead of asking two product managers to think about it and a committee yeah. and whatever, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess that's, um you know, I guess that ties in with the sort of Amazon style API platformification, you know, of services. But, but equally, there's, um, there's, a, there's a danger there seen by retail banks of being commoditized. That actually there will be some, you know, some uh, underlying infrastructure style bank that you've got, you know, startups like Solaris uh, in Germany who who are very much going to going to play that role uh, specifically uh, and then allow those seventy fintechs to build things on top. Do you yeah. see a, a similar future for transaction banking? Will there be infrastructure players that people connect to, or will this innovation and the you know the, the interconnection of companies and banks you know, stay within within a bank? Well, I, I don't think it's either or. I think it's both. Uh, you would see players that have enough scale to play the scale game, which, by the way, can be very profitable if you do this very uh, right. Mm -hmm. And what, But what Benoit said, we are aiming for primary customers. So we want to be where the action is and where the data is, which means that we want to be as close as possible to where business is being done. And that right. means staying into the acquiring business. That means creating our own platforms. That also means going beyond banking. So mm -hmm. instead of just being a bank, we're now mm -hmm. creating something completely new where actually we don't do banking business, but we facilitate the business between different corporates, consumers, et cetera. And based on that activity, we then maybe help to do some payments, et cetera. But it's not about the payments or purely the banking business it's about facilitating doing business so yeah. it, it's a different a different approach and it, it's still we need to be very good at what we're doing right that is lesson number one so you can play in different areas etc but please make sure that what you're doing today as close as possible to the customer do this very right it's the choice between the tracks and the trains, right? Those are the discussion. And by the way, I'd like to, when you have, when you talk about these choices, I'd like to be the station. Because <laughs> in the station, there are the shops, there is the interaction, and probably there's more money being made in that station than in the tracks or in the trains. So, yeah. And maybe just to give you one example of what we need to offer as added services, right? We, uh, we started an internal fintech, right? It's also going back to Simon's point or who are the guys behind the fintechs. I think, guess what? You know, there are many bankers also behind it. Yeah. And we started a company called Payconic, which is a peer-to-peer -peer payment, but also including uh, some advantages, concrete advantages in loyalty programs for merchants, right? So smaller merchants do not have the means to develop their own loyalty schemes or programs, right? So we're building this for them. And this is the added value we can bring by building this community uh, of people, but linking payments with loyalty with the merchants. And, and this is very close to the core of the knowledge. And you cannot start a business, you know, coming from you know, being a telco 
or a, or a large retailer and say, now I'm going to do this, right? So you need core competencies mm. to build this. And, and we're trying to build this uh, uh, this way, right? The power of combining data from multiple angles. So imagine a company that might go bust, right? Normally we would look at that company and say, well, oh, the risk is getting too high, blah, blah, blah. Let's terminate these loans and stop with it. Today, with what we know of this company, we can see actually who their suppliers are and the suppliers of the suppliers. And we see their employees with their mortgages. You get a total different debate if if you're not talking about 100 million loss, but if you talk about 300 million loss, because you're putting it maybe at risk, also 100 million in terms of mortgages, and there are also eight suppliers that might go bust. That's what we're actually doing. We're looking at these data. The fact that we know there might be issues and you might help people that might become mm. into trouble with their mortgages and start helping them and addressing those issues. Talk to the suppliers that are banking with us. Say, hey, you may want to do something about your dependency about these companies. Not revealing that we're talking about this company, but to give better advice. We're, we're only just starting to discover what is possible and what we can do with it, et cetera, to the benefit of our consumers, our corporates, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense... It, it helps us to build trust to make sure we are the trusted advisor and we actually know what we're doing. And I can give you five, six, seven more of these uh, examples, but this is just one of them that we're actually using. Yeah, I, th I think that's amazing. And uh, Martin Benoit, you know, I want to thank you for uh, uh, for sharing what you know about transaction banking and also convincing me that global transaction services is sexy. So um, <laughs> it's a banquet, but it's a tech company with benefits. Right? Well, indeed. I guess to wrap up, um, who are you looking for in terms of startups or bankers or, you know, uh, with the, uh, you know, the podcast goes out to thousands of people? Um, how can they get in contact with you and, and who are you looking for? Well, <laughs> I think it's easy now to go to the Twitter or LinkedIn accounts. I think it's always the best way uh, to contact us. Uh, we're happy to uh, to follow up on anything, right? No, but look look also at our website uh, ing.com because we've got multiple uh, uh, people that we're looking for. We're looking at people with a uh, uh, fresh pair of eyes uh, coming from multiple direction, and I think I said the most challenges around regtech, fintechs, etc. But the main thing I think is to help us create that differentiating customer experience. That is basically what it's about. That is one. The second one is about getting the best client services and consultancy uh, mm. on board. And yeah. if people are interested, they can always send me an email. Uh, I'm sure if you can find me on LinkedIn or whatever on Twitter, you can find me uh, somewhere else. So uh, thank you guys for, uh, for having us uh, here and giving us this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And that's the end of another episode of Fintech Insiders. Thanks again to the guys at ING and to the crew here. Please leave us a review and a, a good rating on our iTunes account. And we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.